Hey guys, welcome back to episode six. It's been a minute since I've actually pre-filmed, so it's just crazy. Um, I kind of took a break from it. Fun fact about me is I love true crime. I love investing myself into the different cases, and I will literally get sucked into it for like weeks on end. It can be anywhere from like one week to six weeks where I'm just like sucked into it and you know I, I'm doing all like this research on cases and stuff like that which is perfect for a podcast but then I go through a spell where I'm like I need to step back from it. I've gone too far. I'm feeling kind of like down and out and um, I think it has a lot to do with like my anxiety. I also have a background with depression so I still kind of have like my low points and I'll kind of start going into those low points and I'm like okay I need to back off the true crime for a little bit. Um, stop doing all this research about people's deaths and um, depressing things like that and kind of like work on myself and then like you know then I eventually get sucked back in. So that is where it's gonna be great for this type of thing because when I'm into it, I can pre-film a bunch of episodes for you guys and then slowly like edit them. And then when I'm like kind of down and out for a little bit and I need to take a break, I can because I have so many pre-filmed and ready to go. As I am filming this one, episode four just went up, I think yesterday. So that's really exciting and I have just been, the last four weeks with it being out has just been incredible. My uh, little community has been growing and I've hit 100 followers on Instagram. So thank you so much if you've listened and you went and followed me. If you haven't yet and you're new, um, please go check it out. It's at Caffeine Crime Podcast and it's always down below in the like description area. And... So is my blog and a blog post goes up every single Tuesday when one of these go up. I do a whole blog on the case and I have started to get a few requests on Instagram. Thank you guys so much. I'm definitely going to be looking into those cases and I hope to do them soon. Now that I'm kind of getting back into like a little bit of a kick, I'm going to start researching those cases and so hopefully some requests will start going out in between other ones. But I did say in the beginning of this that I wanted to make season one very personal to me with these cases on cases that really like, something about it always stuck with me and I never forgot these cases. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing with this season. So I haven't decided, since I have been getting requests already and I did not expect that. I don't know, maybe I'll just mix it in. I'll see, I'm still trying to decide, but this intro is very long and I apologize if you're new here, it usually isn't this long. <laughs> so today we're gonna go ahead and jump into this case. Um, this took place in Nuego, Michigan. And um, sadly, it was a 25 year cold case, like insane, but it was solved. That's the amazing part about it. I mean, you hear about all these cold cases like the episode of John Benet Ramsey um, that I did and while I'm on that subject, um, I just wanted to say um, that I haven't really gotten a lot of feedback from the episode besides a couple of like backlashes and I didn't expect it because I really try to be um, as common ground as I can and I will state that I never was implying that the Ramsey family did it. Um, more so that I don't know, the evidence that I have personally looked at and stuff like that, it's just weird to think of it being an outside job without finding um, 
a match pretty much. Um, but with that being said, I will stay common ground because it was never solved. It could have been an outsider. And the more and more research I did for the episode, the more I was like, okay, you know, like that's, that's weird. Maybe it wasn't the family. Maybe it was like an intruder or something, but I've always been like kind of common ground. When I first discovered the case, I was like, no, that was an inside job. But the more research that I've done on the case, there's just so many loopholes with it being an intruder, but there's so many loopholes with it being the family. So I'm on common ground. So I hope nobody else will come at me for that episode. Oh my God. <laughs> but um, yeah, a couple were not happy with that episode and definitely stayed their mind, which I'm all for a good debate. I'm here if you want to debate. Um, I always like to keep those over on my Instagram though. So I'll debate with you there, but it gets a little heated, I'm gone. <laughs> So back to this case, like I said, Nuevo, Michigan, and it took place in 1989. So this is the case of Shannon Siders, and she was 18 years old. So she was a senior in high school, and she was loved by a lot of people. Um, she had a group of friends who said that, I mean, she was a good girl, like she did great in school, and... Um, hung out with a group of really good kids. It was a shock at how well that she had done for herself um, without having a mom because at the time she was just living with her dad. He was a single dad and he worked the night shift. So it started at midnight and he would get home around 8.30 in the morning on the days that he worked. So on July 17th of 1989, Bob Siders, her dad, he left for work normal time. He had to be at work at midnight and he wouldn't get back until 8.30 in the morning. And when he got home, he realized that his daughter wasn't home. He looked through the house. He called around to see if she was with anyone, calling all of her friends up on the phone. Like, I mean, this is 89, so there wasn't like cell phones and stuff like that. So, you know, he was calling people on his like his landline, like saying, you know, have you seen Shannon? He it got to the point where he was a little frantic because he was like, you know, all of her best friends are saying that they don't know where she's at. So he started going outside and running down the neighborhood, like yelling for her. Um, and then finally, I mean, he automatically just freaked out. Like Shannon was very close to his heart and went to the police station and filed a missing report. So he also posted flyers and asked everyone in the area if they had seen her. Again, we don't have like social media and cell phones and that type of ordeal. So the best that you could do here is file a police report and put up flyers, ask around. I mean, that was literally your only hope at finding a missing person and also hopes of it getting on like a news station or that type of um, ordeal. There was a lot of people at that time that came into the police station and actually said that they had seen her. Um, there was even a tip that Shannon was living with some people in a house across town and she was hiding out from her dad. And it was supposed to be like a drug house. So it was just a bunch of junkies that lived there. But there was this young girl named Shannon who was afraid of her father and she was hiding there. So when the police got there, um, they discovered that it was a complete different Shannon. But it was just so strange because it was just like, you know, what's the odds of two girls missing named Shannon? But that was unfortunately the other one, which I mean is good. And you know, that family's case, but um, 
sad in Bob's case because he still was looking for his daughter. 15-year-old Amy Bonner, which I'm saying because she is a big part of this case, she was working at the sheriff's department um, at the front desk when she got a call and it was a really excited, like cheerful boy that would yelled in the phone, I just killed Shannon Siders, and then he hung up. You know, some people thought that maybe it was just like a prank call or something like that, but she definitely took it to heart and was like, I heard his voice. I know how he sounded like to this day. She said that she just has chills thinking about that phone call. Labor Day weekend, 1989, two hunters out in the woods found identification cards um, of Shannon's. There's two of them. Uh, police came out to the area and they also found a pair of blue jeans that could have been her because it was like around the same size of jeans that she wore, the same style, that type of ordeal. The area these things were found in were actually a common spot for teenagers and it was called the hole in the woods and it was where tons of teenagers would come out and do like a bonfire and drink and you know probably drugs and stuff like that. Um, a, kind of like a getaway place away from like their parents and um, away away from school and her father once he had heard about the findings he took his dog out and searched this whole area up and down he said that he kept searching for his daughter he didn't find any signs of her and a month later during deer hunting season a hunter came across a body that was already decomposing in that same very area and the hole in the woods. The body was identified as Shannon. Um, her body was found three months after the fact. She was brutally beaten, raped, and her cause of death was trauma to the head. Her father was, of course, very sensitive on the matter. And since there was no lead so far onto who could have done this awful thing to his daughter, he didn't trust anyone. And he was very straightforward about everything. Like, no, that's, you know, I'm not, we're doing it my way and that's it. And so at her um, funeral memorial, what they had for her, only females were allowed to carry her casket um, because he knew that this was done by a man or by men because she was raped. All the evidence they had geared towards it, they knew that it was probably a group of boys. And... He didn't know if this was people who were so-called friends of Shannon and he didn't want to trust any boy in town because he didn't know who did this to his daughter. So only girls carried her cas casket. Um, almost the whole entire high school was present at her funeral. She was very loved. They had asked Bob, the high schoolers, if they could all write their own letters to put with her, her casket, with her... Um, as kind of like a goodbye note, and he said yes, they could. As goodbyes were said, the letters were one by one placed in the casket. The only profile they were able to go off of for a killer um, had to be is that it had to be more than one, and it was probably her age and someone that she knew. In homicide cases that involve rape, it is known that the sicko will keep a treasure from the victim. A trophy, in a way. It is so sickening, but, I mean, this is very common in a lot of true crime cases. Shannon had a class ring that was never found around her body or even in her room. 
After pathologists looked at the body, they determined this happened the last two weeks of July to early August, sometime in there. While searching for the last person Shannon was with, police found out that she was actually last with eight people. All eight people became suspects due to the fact that they were afraid to come forward or were unwilling to. So they were brought in anyways for questioning, and there were three girls and five guys in this group of people. And it was kind of a shocking thing to her father and her close friends because this group of eight people were not her close friends. These were the group of party kids who were always in the hole in the woods doing drugs and drinking, and they were just the party scene. So it was definitely like a shock. It was like she kind of was kind of going through a phase where um, she wasn't really hanging out with her friends as much as she let on, I guess. Or maybe she was invited this night and was like, Ooh, you know, the party kids are kind of cool, so she's going to go out with them. It was that type of ordeal. So her friends were kind of like, you know, man, I, I didn't know this. And, you know, her father was definitely very hurt by the fact that she was out with this group of kids. But even so, they were ruled out one by one with questioning and polygraph tests. So what had really happened was Shan, Shannon's father said that he left for work at 10.30, and that's the time he normally left. I guess his work was an hour and a half away. After he did, she met up with some friends that liked partying. Like I said, they were the party group. Her close friends mentioned that Shannon wasn't great friends with them, but liked the parties. They came in three separate cars and all met up at the hole in the woods. They were drinking, smoking, driving around the trails in the forest. Um, around midnight, Shannon was ready to go home. She was riding around with Levi Pearson and Brandon Sievers. Brandon had a name around town for thinking of women as always as like sluts and whores. He was one of those type. Um, tips came into the station that Brandon left town around this time Shannon went missing, which was like really weird. Um, when they asked him about it that night, he said when she decided she was ready to go home, um, they met back up with some of the others and she went with them and that he never saw her again. When they asked why he left town, he had said that he had left town to go pick up a cousin to bring him back and that it was only for like a day or two. It wasn't like he was running from anything. He told the people he got into a car with Paul and Matt Jones. They were brothers and said the plan was to go back to Shannon's house to drink beer and watch movies. But after they left the group at the hole in the woods and got to Shannon's house, Shannon said that she was really tired and wanted to go to bed. So they said they ended up just dropping her off. They even gave very detailed descriptions like we dropped her off. It was between midnight and 2 a.m. Um, they said the porch light was on, a TV was on inside, and a dog inside was waiting for her at the door. The police did a polygraph test on them, of course, and then he, they actually went out to the house and checked these things to see if from the driveway they could in fact see a TV and the light um, from the window, and they could. And they also checked to see if they opened the door, if they would be able to, like, you know, see, like, a dog there and stuff. Everything checked out. People wanted to think it was a stranger, but it just didn't make sense with it all being at that location. After years, the case did go cold. Her father had um, connections with a lot of businesses who would keep who killed Shannon Siders up on signs to make sure that people were aware and that people knew that a killer was never caught and it was somebody was on the loose that brutally killed his daughter. In August of 2011, I mean, guys, we're talking 
from 89 to 2011, 22 years after her death, a task force team was put together to reopen this case. They agreed with Bob that if they could find her ring, they could probably find the killer because these people were just like, why did I never think about the class ring that had went, you know, missing? Nobody ever found this class ring. The police back in the day, I guess it was just something that they just kind of rubbed off. They were just like, I'm sure it's just somewhere in the dirt somewhere. We didn't find it. Maybe she wasn't wearing it. Maybe, you know, she misplaced it. They just didn't really think about it. But her father still pleaded with them like she never took this ring off. They went out with metal detectors to search for the ring and the hole in the woods many times. I mean, this detective, he went out there so many times and he said he found so many other things, so many gun shells from hunters, but, um, or bullet shells from hunters, but never this ring. So now we're back to Amy Bonner, the 15 year old who answered the phone, who is now older and this case never left her. She still had it stuck on her mind all the time and she ended up taking it into her own into her own hands too and was very excited to hear that the case was reopened. She started talking to people every day, asking questions and sometimes up to 10 people in one day. People got very frustrated with her because of the way she questioned them and she did say that she may have come off a little pushy but it was because every single person in this small town that she lived in, she looked at as a suspect. That now being 2011, one of the detectives in the task force set up a page on Facebook for Shannon and met Amy, bon Amy Bonner through that page. They reached out and started talking. She told them about the 911 call and would fill them in with anything she ever heard about in the case. So if she got any tips whatsoever, she would message it to them. And one day, Amy got a message from a girl of a story about her family and how she thought they could be involved. It was the Hammond family and they had a bad reputation with incest and abuse. This girl said that they had a house by the lake that had a creek running underneath it. If that is not creepy enough, I don't know what is. That is like straight out of a horror movie. <laughs> um, and Shannon, uh, they, she said that Shannon was raped there by several people after being drugged. She said they kept her in there for several days tied up. They then took her from that location to the woods in a van. They laid her in the woods and then they ran over her. Amy asked her to bring her to that house with the creek under it. And the girl did. Like she brought her out to this house. It was a house in the middle of the woods with a creek running underneath it. Like this house must have been like held up like on cinder blocks or something with a creek underneath it, like straight through it. It's just, oh, it kind of gives me the chills. Like, and it did for her too. Like she literally was like, oh my God, you know, Shannon died here. There's no way that she didn't. She called it in and a detective came out and he too was like blown away that, oh my God, there's a creek under this house. This family had been in jail or had charges against them. It was a very rough crew. The story was that Shannon was raped and held in the basement for days, but this house had no basement. Like it was literally standing on cinder blocks with a creek running underneath it. There was never a basement in this house. They still talked to everyone they could and the Hammond family, and there was no evidence that they ever had anything to do with this case. The last thing that the task force really wanted was to look into was the letters that were buried with Shannon, which like, that's just another like just common sense thing. Like 
is that not like weird? I like I get like all of her friends would want to write her like a letter but I don't know I feel like in a case like that like a homicide I feel like it should be something where they should have looked at all of them. So they asked to resume the body and Bob agreed. In case of a confession letter they went through them but there wasn't one. But since they had her body back out well looking it over they found in her hand was a like wad of hair. So they of course thought maybe she was fighting back. Maybe this is the strands of the person that was attacking her. Um, but sadly when they tested it, it belonged to Shannon herself. So the case was going cold again. So they started bringing back everyone that knew Shannon for questioning. Julia, Shannon's best friend was brought in. She said she got off work that night at 10 p.m. and said Shannon said she had an errand to run and that they could hang out. I don't know if maybe Shannon got a call after this from the other friends saying, hey, we're going to the hole in the woods and maybe she just like ditched her friend. I'm not sure, but she still, her friend Julia went over to her house. Um, she said she got there around 11, 11.30 and knocked and there was no answer. So I guess they lived pretty close to each other. So she just went back home and she said that she literally came back every half hour and knocked on the door. Like that's, I mean, a very dedicated friend. She went in at one point and ran up to Shannon's room and Shannon wasn't there. The last time she went was a quarter to 3 a.m. and she still wasn't home so she kind of just gave up on it like okay Shannon had other plans. But the weird thing about her telling the police this was the fact that Paul and Matt said they took her home between midnight and 2 a.m. but if this friend got there around 3 why wouldn't she be home? Lindsay Bradley was another friend that was out that night and she dated Paul Jones. She came forward and said that she was riding around in Paul's car with him and saw a class ring in his ashtray. She confronted him and she said, you're asking me on a date when you have another girl's class ring in your ashtray? And he said, let's face it, she's probably dead. They had to have some evidence to nail these two. Um, because obviously at this point they're like these two brothers had more going on with this than what they've led on because why would they have a random class ring? We need to find out whose class ring that is. So Amy had talked to a girl she went to school with. Her name was Jenny. Jenny says that she knew everything that happened and was too afraid to come forward. Amy definitely was just like, oh my God, you know, you knew it. Why wouldn't you tell me? You know me and you know that I went all over the place digging for answers for this case. And Jenny, while she was crying, said that she was scared that they would come after her, but told detectives they needed to talk to Dean Robinson. So on July 18th, 1989, Jenny was riding around with Dean. So these were two other kids that went to this high school. They weren't the eight people that were in the hole in the woods. They were two complete different kids who were just riding around, I think kind of like on a date. And they came up on a car that was in the woods. I guess there was like these dirt trails and they all would just take their cars in the woods. Um, and Jenny stayed in the car while Dean got out to talk to some boys that were standing by the car. Jenny heard the person say his name was Jones. Um, she overheard them say that they were looking for a girl. She had got away and now they were hunting her down pretty much. So there was some girl, I don't know if they kind of made it sound like, yeah, we have a girl with us and she's lost somewhere in the woods and you know, um, Dean was just like, oh, you know, I hope you find her. And I guess him and Jenny left. The Jones boys, in fact, did catch up to her. They beat her, they raped her, and they killed her. And they also took her ring. 
Later, Dean and Ginny went back and seen the same two brothers with a girl laying lifeless on the ground. Dean ran up to them to see if he could help and tripped and fell to see that it was Shannon Siders. So when he seen it, he just assumed, oh my God, something happened to this girl. They need my help. And when he ran, he tripped and he fell and seen her face laying there. At this point, when he looks up, Paul Jones was walking up to him, kicked him in the face, and then he looked over and Matt Jones was walking around with a hammer. Jenny, who was in the car, started honking the horn and both of the brothers hurried up and jumped in their car. They were too afraid to come forward because of these brothers because they were, I guess, I don't even know if they were threatened. I think at this point they were just terrified of the whole situation. I don't know. Um, when these brothers were questioned, they were the brothers that um, had a polygraph test done. They were questioned about everything. They were the ones that apparently when Shannon got tired, you know, the other guy dropped her off at the hole in the woods and then she got in the car with these two brothers and they apparently took her home. They were going to drink beer and watch TV and then when they got there she was too tired so they just dropped her off. It was those brothers and they had all of those details about what her house looked like, what was going on in the house. They made it very detailed and I mean literally passed a polygraph test which I mean this was 89 so um I'm sure those are like a lot more updated now and technology. During their interview back when it had happened in 89, they had been asked, one of, the, one of the questions they were asked was, what should happen to these people if we catch them? And they said, you should lock them up for good. Sadly, it was them two brothers and they were questioned from the very beginning and got by with it. Yet they were just kind of free people for 25 years well, nobody knew what had happened to Shannon, who had done it to her. They lived freely for 25 years. It is so awful, but it is incredible um, what goes into these cases and how the littlest thing like a class ring can solve a whole person's murder. And the fact that people do not speak up. It's a scary thing to be face to face with people like that. But when it's literally someone's daughter, someone's friend, uh, I don't understand it. Always speak up on these matters. Shannon finally got justice 25 years later after she was brutally killed. She would have been 43 years old. Um, I think it said 45 years by time they were sentenced. Um, and they, of course, one of them was actually already locked up at the time for some other dispute, but the other one did get life. It is definitely a very sad case. Um, I came across this case and it just kind of stuck with me because of the the fact that the whole like hole in the woods, this being a group of, you know, kids that any of them could have done it and um, all the loopholes that were there and yet it was a cold case for so long and then just the whole fact of the clashing being like the key evidence that they needed to find the people who did this to her, I just thought was so bizarre and not something that I hear about a lot in cases. It's always some type of other little evidence that they find, but if you do want to see um, some of the people that were involved with this, like the detectives, her father, Amy Bonner, who answered that um, 911 call that I guess was one of those brothers, who excitedly said that they killed her. 
Um, you can check it out. It's actually on Netflix. Um, it's one of the cold cases episodes. I can't think for sure what it's called. I will link it in my blog type out what it is or something for you guys to look up but I'm sure if you just put in cold cases on Netflix you would find it. It's one of the episodes I think it's called like uh, the circle of friends but I watched it on there a little while back and I was just like blown away by the case and how a lot of things were just kind of looked over and it took 25 years for it to really be broken down and solved. So yeah. That is the case of Shannon Siders. I'm glad that she finally got justice. I love um, cold cases that are finally cracked and people are put away. I wish that they would have been put away back when it happened, but it's nice to know that there is people out there that you can't get away with it, you will get busted type of ordeal, and I wish that it happened a lot more often than what it does. But yeah, I kind of feel like this episode's a little short too. I guess, thank God I have the longer intro today. But that is all I have for this. I am going to start preparing for my next episodes. And again, I just wanted to say thank you so much for the love and support um, of my podcast. It's been nice. I know we talk about like gruesome, horrific stuff here. But um, I'm really excited to finally have a podcast and also be able to um, talk about true crime and be more in the true crime community because... I've always been obsessed with it, so I might as well be part of it. But I appreciate you guys for listening. Thank you guys so much, and I'll be back next week with episode 7. Bye.